Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. month ago when we would usually uh, cover the book of Revelation, I chose to um, actually cover a passage in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. I don't know if you guys uh, were there that day or not. It's when we were at the park and we had tacos out there. And, uh, and so that's what I covered that day as almost an introduction to this today, but also as kind of a link between what we're studying in 1 Corinthians, and then what I knew we would be studying uh, according to the church at Pergamos. And um, I did that so that you could understand what God was establishing in His pattern for His people, okay? So He did things, obviously, in the Old Testament, and God doesn't change, so there you go. We know He's going to act the same way in the New Testament with His church. And what God told them was this. He was telling Israel after He freed them. He said, essentially, things have changed now. Uh, I freed you from slavery, and now you are a people for my own possession. I am Yahweh, your God, and you will be my people. You are no longer a people that will worship many gods. You are no longer a polytheistic People, you are a monotheistic people. You will worship me alone. I am God alone. You are no longer to act the way you acted in Egypt as the Egyptians acted. And it had a whole list of things that went on in, in Egypt that were just absolutely perverse and disgusting. Um, and, and it is imperative that you forget the culture of your past. You have to forget your life as a slave in Egypt. In addition, he warned them not to conform to the culture that they would soon um, see in their future, and that was there in the land of Canaan. And you might think that that would be enough, that God speaking to them directly through Moses and all of the various signs and wonders and miracles that the Israelites witnessed, you might think that that would be enough for them to be uh, devoted to God. He gave them the Ten Commandments and many other statutes as, as well as new instruction for their conduct as His people and their conduct in their devotion to Him as the one and true God, uh, the God who had actually just set them free from the bonds of slavery. But here's what we have to consider. Generation after generation they had been born in the context of slavery in Egypt. That is all they knew. All they knew was how to be slaves. All they knew was the burden that their cruel masters had placed upon their shoulders. All they knew, in many cases, was how to survive. And they survived by blending into their culture, by keeping their head down and not drawing attention to themselves. How many of you know that if you were a slave, the last thing you would want to do is draw attention to yourselves? You're almost uh, definitely inviting the wrong kind of attention. Their lifestyle 
reflected the lives of the culture of the Egyptians around them. And, and as I said, slavery and surviving was all they knew. That was the existence of the Israelites. But God had set them free. And God had set them on a new course, a new existence. But soon, many of them actually longed for the days of slavery again. They were quick to fashion idols and worship false gods. They took wives from other nations and then they converted to their religion and their pagan lifestyles, their idolatry and their immorality. And it was a cycle that we saw them go through. So how strong was the grip of their former culture on those Israelites? I think you could say it was a death grip. It was a death grip. And and here's why I say that. It's estimated that 600,000 men left uh, their slavery in Egypt and then you add to them the women and children and it would have been a huge mass of people on that exodus, around 2.4 million people that, that left the bonds of Egypt and went out into the desert that day uh, seeing the miracles of God. The grip of their former lifestyle was so strong that only a small fraction of those people that left that day wound up inheriting uh, the promised land. We know that God kept them wandering in the desert until most of them died out. And because of their unbelief, God allowed only two men of the earlier generation to enter the promised land. And that was Joshua and Caleb. And along with them, there were the Levites as well as obviously many of the women and children to ensure that that the generations would go on. But why am I bringing this up before we get into the study of the church at Pergamum? It's because in Pergamum, just as we see in our study of Corinth, the culture around them seemed to be an insurmountable force that they as true believers had to stand up against. They had to live in in a world around them that was aggressive towards them and that was so pervasive that it seemed almost impossible to live a life for Christ. It would be similar to you and I having to be faithful to Christ living in a city that was just the whole population were Satanists. That's basically what they were facing. And like the Egyptians, not only did the Pergamites have to be faithful in not conforming to the culture or or lifestyle of their past, they also had to be faithful and not conform to the culture and lifestyle of the world around them and the changes that they would see come in the future in the form of persecution and new government leaders and so on. So just to lay the foundation here again quickly in the book of Revelation, in the beginning of Revelation we see John's breathtaking vision of Jesus our Lord glorified in chapters 1 verses 9 through 20. And if you want an in-depth study of that, and I would, I would certainly encourage you to do so, you can go back and listen to our podcast. It's episode 66 and it's entitled Christ in the midst of His true church. And in this vision of Christ, we see Him walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands represent His true purified church. And He's right in the middle of His church. He is there to inspect them with His all-knowing mind and His eyes like a flame of fire, His all-seeing eyes, nothing hidden from His sight, focused laser-focused on each church to give some commendation and encouragement 
and to some correct and tell them to change their ways before He has to come and condemn them. He's giving the visible church an opportunity to repent because we know Scripture teaches at some point He will call out His true church from among the mass that would be considered His visible church and the unrepentant who choose not to follow Him, who, who wear the badge of Christianity but are not truly devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are not truly devoted to Him, they face His condemnation as we will see in our letter today. In our passage today, Christ sets His flaming gaze on this church at Pergamum. So if you would, I'd like you to stand with me as we read this passage, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, This is what the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, that you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, but if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows, but he who receives it. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Now, I really wanted to name this sermon, uh, like have a clever name for the sermon and name it. I have a sharp sword and I know where you live because that is essentially what Christ is saying here. But I, uh, I decided against that, mostly because I'd probably hear, hear it from my wife. Um, but how many of you would take notice if someone sent you a letter and it said that? I have a really sharp sword and I know where you live right? Um, It would get my attention. I assume it would get yours as well. And especially considering if it was Christ Himself writing you a letter that said, I have a sharp sword and I know where you live. Uh, that, That really sets the stage for how serious this letter is going to be. And that's the thing we have to realize, that these letters encompass not only those seven churches that Christ was actually writing to, But as we've discussed in the past, would it be a coincidence that he picked these particular seven churches? Because there were churches all over Asia Minor that he could have written to. But why these seven churches? Let me uh, just say that these seven churches were addressed in a clockwise order just as these cities were situated on the map. He chose seven signifying Perfect completion, God's perfection and completion, the fullness of time, the fullness of the church, and I believe signifying 
the fullness of the church age. We know the nature of God and we know the nature of man. And we know that these letters dealing with the issues of these seven particular churches transcend to address the issues of essentially any church within the church age, in every age. If we are a local church that conducts ourselves in the positive ways that Christ points out in these various letters to the seven churches, then we know that likely He will approve of us and we will be commended when we stand before God. However, if the majority of this body conducts themselves in such a way that we reflect the churches of which He corrects, then we will face that same correction and and we would be called to repent in our day and time. Notice that in each letter he refers to himself as the author and he points back to John's vision of him in chapter 1. And in this case, chapter 1 verse 16, he is uh, said to be the one who carries the sharp two-edged sword. He wants to make it crystal clear that it is he who is writing this letter in perfect unity with the Spirit of God. So his words, his written word, is in perfect unity with the Spirit of God and through the hand of his beloved disciple John. So Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. And in this instance, it's not so much a warning at the beginning of the letter, but rather it's a statement of his sympathy. It would almost be like he's saying, I get it. I understand the difficulties that you face as the church. You live where Satan lives. Every day you face a spiritual power that seems insurmountable all around you. You feel the pressure of the pagan culture pushing in at every side. But look at verse 13. It says, And you hold fast to my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So in this church, we see that there are true believers. Notice, you can look where he says, you, you, you. He keeps saying, you, you, you. And the yous he is addressing are in the thick of it. The pagan, satanic society there in Pergamum with every kind of temptation you can imagine. They are those who hold fast to His name, even in those circumstances. And He is essentially saying, I get it. I know your situation. I know the circumstances in which you have to live. And it's, in, it's obvious in this context that the forces of darkness are hard at work in this city. And some of you, He says, have been faithful. Some of you have been faithful. So the question is, is this figurative or did Satan actually dwell in this city of Pergamum at that time? Well, we know in Scripture that the devil is not omnipresent. Some like to make him omnipresent, but he's not omnipresent. He's a singular being. And he's certainly not in hell, as most people say he is, today or believe he is today that he's got a pitchfork and a red suit and he's and he's shoveling coal in the flame in the flames of uh, to feed the flames of hell that's not what the bible says about uh, the satan the opposer the accuser the bible tells us in job 1:7 he was roaming the earth going back and forth on it in 1 peter 5 peter tells us that satan prowls as a lion seeking whom he may devour 
He is looking for his next victim. He is not the enemy of God. He is the enemy of God's people. Paul says in Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The same wording is used often, principalities, powers, dominions, etc., which suggests there is a hierarchy among the rulers of darkness. There are princes, and there are powers, and there are dominions. And it would not be a stretch to think perhaps there was a central command, if you will, from which Satan operated. If Pergamum was that place, there would likely be some major clues to cause us to believe that Satan, in fact, had a very tight spiritual grip in this particular geographical location. The first clue that we see in the Scripture here is that Jesus mentions that one of His faithful witnesses, Antipas, was killed there. Tradition says that Antipas was martyred in a brazen bull or cooked alive. And uh, do we have a... Did you get the slides? Did it work? I didn't know if you got them or not, but I did do slides, so uh, Colton is going to put those up if he can, otherwise I'll do it. Sorry, bud, I should have made sure that you, that you knew. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Sometimes technology misses the mark, but uh, most of the time it's communication. <laughs> he got all red looking at me out there like, oh, geez. Yeah, I wish we had cameras. We would point them all to you right now. and We'd put shame, shame, shame across the... I'm just kidding. All right, so he's working on it. So the first clue is that this faithful witness, Antipas, was he was martyred. And tradition says that, that Antipas was martyred in a, in a terrible way. If you can imagine, there was a, a brazen bull uh, that was metal, and they would open a door and put the person inside the brazen bull and close the door and then they would light a fire underneath. So the person wasn't actually catching on fire and dying that way. They were actually being cooked inside this this brazen uh, bull. So we know that there was most definitely persecution taking place in that city and the pressure continued for the believers even following that because he says, many of you remained faithful. Do I need to, you think I need to do it? Or it's not finding your... Oh, you are? Okay, okay. all right. Here we go. He'll, he'll find it here in just a second. So the city of Pergamum was situated atop a large mountain. And it was, when you're out on the plains, it was a massive, impressive sight to behold. A monumental archaeological achievement. It had massive political and religious influences, even in Rome. Well, why would this be the case? Yeah, that. so there's the picture of uh, Antipas. Uh, there's some there that are uh, pictures of the ruins of, of uh, the Acropolis there. Um, one, because it was a hub of Roman political power. And it was also a hotbed of pagan worship and sacrifice to the Greek deities. So it was also a known place that people would go to be healed. And the emperor himself would actually go here in order to be healed. 
There was a major well-known sanctuary called the Asclepion, and it was dedicated to the healing god Asclepius. And it was located just outside the city. It had a well-manicured road that led over to this sanctuary. The emperor himself, as I said, would go there for treatment often, and it combined a traditional medicine, traditional medicine with magic, with psychiatry, with dream therapy, and with hypnosis. And thousands of people came from all around to have their sickness and disease healed by this, this false god, Asclepion. The therapists in this cult would have the patients sleep on the floor of the sanctuary, and as they slept, they would loose thousands of snakes on the floor and just cover the floor. And so as they slept, the snakes would crawl all over the patient and supposedly through those serpents, the healing touch of Asclepius would heal their sicknesses and their diseases. And this is why the god Asclepius was depicted holding a rod with a serpent intertwined on the rod. And you may be wondering, where have I seen that before? Well, you've all seen it before. The answer is just on just about every ambulance you've ever seen, uh, every pharmacy you've ever been in, that Greek influence is still persisting in our culture today, that serpent on the rod. However, in those days you could see how this cult believed, uh, the cult that believed Asclepius was the divine healer, would not like these new Christians who were saying that Christ, that Jesus Christ was the true healer, and was the Son of God. It was a demonically inspired cause for them to persecute Christian believers in the city of Pergamum. And perhaps for that reason alone, we could actually legitimately say that, that Pergamum could be called the place where Satan dwells or Satan's throne. But were there other reasons that, that we might find that would give us reason to think so? Well, in addition to the cult following of Asclepius, Pergamum also had what was called the Acropolis. And this was this huge structure on this massive hill. And it consisted of a top level where palaces were located. And then the second level, there was a very steep theater and there was a gymnasium. And it had the second largest library in the ancient world right there in Pergamum. And get this, there were over 200,000 volumes in this library. And remember, they didn't have a printing press. That means every one of these volumes or these, these books or scrolls or whatever form they were in, that they were all handwritten. And it was second only to the library in Alexandria. And various religious sanctuaries were in this, uh, this uh, complex. And one of the religious sites was a huge altar called the Altar of Zeus. And here they would observe sacrifices for the nearby temples, both of Athena and Zeus. And these sacrifices took place almost 24 hours a day. They were making sacrifices on this altar. There were two wings separated by a huge staircase, which looked strikingly similar to a throne. And perhaps, quote, the throne of Satan in the letter to Pergamum was referring to this. And many scholars have that opinion that it was on this altar that Antipas was martyred. If you go there today, you won't find this altar, or the majority of it at least, because uh, for a very interesting reason, in the late 19th century, this altar was disassembled 
and reconstructed in Berlin, Germany. This was uh, uh, just prior to the, the Second World War. In 1930, a museum was opened in Berlin with the reconstructed altar of Zeus uh, being the main attraction for this museum. So thus far there in Pergamum, we have a cult worshiping a false god and using serpents in their pagan healing practices. And then we also have a massive altar which offers sacrifices, including human sacrifices and Christians being killed uh, to the false god Zeus 24 hours a day. All right? However, the most notable structure on the Acropolis, on the highest point of the mountain, they built what was called the Temple of Trajan. And it was Trajan who started the construction of this in the second century AD, but it was completed by his successor Hadrian. And this domineering structure served as powerful propaganda for the Roman Empire. And this became the center for the uh, cult of emperor worship right there in Pergamum. And this was once again uh, bound together, uh, or it bound together those who sat at the highest levels of governmental power with religion and worship. Families would even gather and sing hymns to the emperor, uh, calling him Lord and God and King. They would worship him as a divine being. And of course, the emperors would happily take that mantle upon themselves because it served as an excellent means of control over the people if the people actually believed that they were deities. So very er early on in Pergamum, uh, it became the center of emperor worship, and which actually became a cult that spread uh, everywhere around that area. And, and here's what I mentioned before. And this is something you have to consider when, when Paul says, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's referencing this, this a replacement for this kind of emperor worship. Every year they would be expected to burn incense on the altar and declare Caesar as their Lord. And if they didn't, then imprisonment would follow, and sometimes it meant death for those who would not declare Caesar as Lord. So when the Bible tells us that we should declare Christ as Lord, it means supreme Lord over all of our life, that, that we would even lay down our lives for Him if necessary. So allow me to kind of sum this up. In the time that this letter was written, Pergamum was the center of a cult, power, and practice. The worship of false deities such as Zeus, Athena, and pagan practices of a sexual nature. Worship and allegiance to their, allegiance to their false god Asclepius. They engaged in serpent rituals for healing. Human sacrifices on the high altar of Zeus, one of which could have been Antipas, whom Jesus in this very letter called his faithful witness. And the unholy alliance between the highest levels of government power and false religion, which, folks, is a type of what we see over and over throughout Scripture. It is the spirit of Antichrist. It is the spirit of Babylon. And we see in Revelation, I believe, chapter 13, we see the beast and the false prophet and this false religion being the final kind of culmination of all of this. All of these combined made Pergamum a very dangerous place for a follower, a true believer of Christ to boldly live for Christ. So when we read the opening to this letter, we can see why 
the Lord Jesus said what He said to them. I want to read it again, if you'll look there with me. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So now we, we have the context in which he wrote those words. Now that was the commendation. He writes the commendation to some in that local church, but that's where the commendation ends because Christ now turns His sights on those within the church who have not been faithful. Look at verse 14 and verse 15. But I have a few things against you, that you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now I could actually spend a whole hour talking about Balaam and his teaching and, and connect that to the Nicolaitans and what they believed. Um, but perhaps that's a study that you can do on your own uh, at home. But for now, I will explain the reason why Jesus brings up these two particular uh, instances in relation to that church there in Pergamum. Balaam, for a time, was considered to be a prophet of God, or he was a known sorcerer. He was a, a diviner, okay? And it seems that when you read the account in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, that's where you find the story, Numbers 22 through 24, it seems that Balaam was a good guy. He was completely aware of God's truth and what God required for his people, but Balaam's heart was selfish, unfruitful, I'm sorry, unfaithful and unrepentant. He was greedy. And when Balak, the king of Moab, asked him to curse Israel for a reward, obviously um, Balaam's desire to gain that wealth um, was more important to him than the truth of what God had set forth for his people. So he tried to curse Israel for financial gain. But of course, a diviner or a sorcerer cannot uh, be successful in that because God's God and you can't do that to God. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, Peter mentions this and he called it the wages of unrighteousness. And of course, we know in the story that God didn't allow this to succeed. So instead, knowing of the Israelites' propensity to turn back to their former sinful patterns, Balaam devised a plan to cause Israel to fall into sin, into idolatry, and into immorality. He told the king, Balak, all you have to do is allow the Moabite women to come in among the Israelite men and let them do what comes natural. Let the women uh, seduce the men and eventually the men will give in and eventually the men will turn their attention to the Moabite idols and begin to worship this false religion. That's how you do it. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. The king took his advice. They, he allowed the Moabite women to come in among the Israelites. And before long, the men had turned to these foreign wives and, and worshiping idols and sexual immorality. So 
this was obviously from Balaam's uh, point a devious act in order to lead Israel away from the Lord. And Balaam himself was trying to play both sides. He was trying to gain the wealth of the world, but he was also uh, wanting to maintain or keep his mantle as a prophet of God. And Balaam eventually got his wages of unrighteousness. It's interesting how he died. You can look in Joshua chapter 13, verse 22. I'll read it to you, Joshua 13, 22. It says, "...the sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, the diviner, with the sword among the rest of their slain." So he died by the sword. Verse 15 says, uh, as we continue, So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans were most likely the followers of a false teacher by the name of Nicholas. And there are various ideas as to what they believed. We can't really know for certain, and maybe that bothers you, but the, the point is this. It shouldn't bother you because he tells us it's the same thing as what Balaam did. So Balaam was an Old Testament example. The Nicolaitans were a New Testament, New Testament example. They mixed the world's ways with God's ways. They compromised for the sake of comfort, and this led them into the sin of idolatry and sexual immorality. And there were Balaams in the church, Christ is saying. Pergamum, you have Balaams in your church. You have Nicolaitans in your church, and you are tolerating it. You're allowing this to go on in my church. Did you know that every single book in the New Testament warns against false teachers in Christ's church with the exception of one book? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, again, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, it says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And I'm certain he knew that, yes, they may face the sword or something similar like Balaam did, But we all know when we stand before God, the real end is whether or not you will be held accountable and and we know that eternal judgment cast into the lake of fire. So a warning to the church of Pergamum that although there were some who were faithful to Christ, even they were tolerant of the false teachers and idolaters and those who were practicing immorality. These folks lived one way outside of the church walls and then they would show up on the Lord's Day and they would come right in and act like everybody else. So this was a, this was a very blatant perversion of God's ways and what God expected for those who, who claimed to be true believers in Jesus Christ. They were allowing sin and impurity as well as false teachers to mix within the church. It is idolatry. And what does Christ say about, about this whole situation? We find that in verse 16. He says, Therefore repent, but if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them 
with the sword of my mouth. I want you to notice that even in these letters, he's addressing the entire church, but there's a you and there's a them within the church. There are sheep and there are goats within the church. And so that's always the case. And he's saying, I will come to you quickly and make war against them. Do you see that? All right. So this connects the error to the judgment of unbelievers at Christ's second coming. This group within the church of Pergamum, as I said, are not sheep, but they are goats mixed in among the sheep, and they will face this sword of judgment. Revelation 19.15. Revelation 19.15 says that in His coming wrath, Christ will use a sharp sword that proceeds from His mouth, and it will strike down the nation. So it's connecting this sword of truth to His judgment, to conviction. And it's always representative of God's truth. And every single person in this world who's ever been born, whoever draws breath, okay, they will either allow this sort of truth to correct and purify them and make them more like Christ in this life, or they will be facing the sword that convicts them to eternal judgment in the next life. The truth is what decides. Remember that the, the, uh, it's a sharp sword dividing asunder of, of, of soul and spirit, right? It, it, it divides, it lays us to the bone when the truth is exposed and our lives will be held up in comparison to what God has said. And it lays us bare before God. And, and God will know, only God will know in that time whether or not we're truly His. But what can we learn from this? Purity in the local church is of utmost importance. We cannot tolerate open habitual sin and rebellion in Christ's church. And it has to be dealt with by means of biblical church discipline. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... To him I will give some of the hidden manna. This hidden manna is not a mystery, okay? It's a reference to the manna in the wilderness. And they hid some of it in the Ark of the Covenant. And what did this represent? It was prophetic about Christ's coming. In John 6.51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is also my flesh. No great mystery here, right? Um, Jesus is talking about Himself. Those who overcome do so simply because, not of any works of their own, but simply because they have eaten of Christ's flesh. In John 6.53, Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood you will have no life in yourselves. That's the hidden manna. It's all about Christ. This isn't all that He will give them, though. He mentions in the next verse, He says, I will give them a, a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So what is this mysterious white stone that Scripture speaks of with a new name etched on it? Well, of course, as in anything... Biblical, the scholars all have their theories, right? But I think there's one that stands out as being the most likely, and that is this 
that this is a reference to the Roman games that they held in their day, these, these uh, Greek games. In our modern Olympic games, when there are winners, they go to the podium and they receive a gold, silver, or bronze medal, correct? Well, in their day, in their ancient Roman custom, was to award a white stone to the victor with the victor's name etched in the stone. And this served as his ticket to a special awards banquet later on in the ceremony. So according to this view, which I believe fits Scripture best, Jesus is promising the overcomer's entrance into the eternal victory celebration in heaven. Uh, It's often referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb, this big celebration of Christ and His bride. God also, we see in Scripture, changes people's names often. And Jesus even changed Peter's name. I thought that was a... I saw a meme one time about how this was like a, a boss move from Jesus. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't like that name. I'm going to call you Peter. Like he just, just changed his name immediately. And I mean, it's Jesus. What are you going to do? It's like, yeah, okay, that sounds good to me. I'll go by Peter from now on. But God changed people's names in the Old Testament. Maybe Jesus was doing this again to show that I'm God, right? But we know there's a lot of significance in the names in Scripture. But it was signifying a graduation of sorts, um, kind of graduating into a new nature or a new existence, a new life. And not always in the moment that it's given, obviously, because we know that Peter, it took a while for him to live up to his name that was given. But it's usually referring to a change according to a promise that's yet to be fulfilled. And it would be the same in this case. Your new name written on a white stone. Look at the intimacy that's there with Christ giving you, you personally, this ticket into glory to this this grand eternal celebration. And He gives you a new name that only you and Him knows. How cool is that? So it likely refers to just this, this new existence, the Holy Spirit's completed sanctified work in our lives as we are conformed, each and every one of us conformed into the image of Christ. Remember 1 John 3, 2 says that when we see Him, we shall be like Him. We're going to be transformed into the image of Christ and our sanctification will be complete. So how does Christ's letter to the church of Pergamum apply to us today in this day and time? What lessons and what warnings can we take from it? Well, because God's nature does not change and because human nature is depraved and always bent toward decay and destruction, we see this pattern in our world. You and I were born into this Bible Belt culture. We were born into it. And we think our perception is that this is reality, that what we think and know of Scripture and about religion and about the church that, that we got it all, all of our information in this span of life that we've lived, unless you study history and you study your Bible well, you just kind of accept the waters around you. You just believe the culture around you. But how do we know that the modern church culture is right? How do we know that it's even biblical? It can be just as dangerous of a deception as the newly freed Israelites faced when they left Egypt. We face 
the same pitfalls that they did in our modern world. We face the same traps as the believers in the early church of Corinth who were surrounded by worldly practices, by false teachers, and by religious, demonic religious practices, false religions. We face the same pressures as the church at Pergamum pressing in on every side. The Bible tells us the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to destroy us, get us off track. And these forces are active in every single local church. And that is why we must be set apart. We are to be holy. We are a people for God's own possession. And we bear His name. We cannot be friendly to the world in embracing the world's ways and, and the things that the world engage in. 1 John 2 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love the world and love Christ at the same time. James 4, 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. So you can't love both. The Bible's very clear about that. And what about idolatry? Well, while you and I may not be faced with the test of tossing incense on an altar and declaring our allegiance to some worldly political leader, proclaiming them as our Lord, we don't have to do that. Uh, but don't be fooled. The most, the most deceptive form of idolatry that you and I face comes in the form of spirituality or religious fervor for you and I in the Bible Belt. We must hold everything up to the light of God's Word and test every spirit because you and I face the dangers of spiritual idolatry every single day of our lives. In the form of false teachers, there are Balaams in the modern church as well. There are Nicolaitans in the modern church as well, infiltrating the visible church, many of which... Folks are promoted on television as modern-day spiritual celebrities. And we can't just buy what they say hook, line, and sinker. In addition, worship services being mixed with the world's ways. It's, it's backwards from what God intended. We are not supposed to change the church to attract the world. We are supposed to be the church and proclaim His truth and allow the Holy Spirit of God to bring the right people and build His church. And that comes from the bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But worship services, as I said, being mixed with uh, kind of the world's ways in order to attract unbelievers and most unknowingly do this. But some huge Christian movements today actually embrace ancient mystic religious practices like there are Christian tarot cards. And they claim that those things once belonged to God, and so the church has to, has to get those back and use those to their own advantage. We see on a monumental scale God's Word being mishandled, abused, and used. Uh, verses quoted out of context as like incantations or magic spells. They're using the Word of God. They quote it like it's the verse itself that has the power rather than the God the verse represents. 
And that's a form of mysticism. People constantly claiming that they're getting new revelation directly from God. Do we understand what it means when you say you're hearing from God what it does to Scripture? If all of us can just hear divine revelation from God, then we might as well toss the Bible aside. We don't need it anymore if we can all just hear directly from God. We see the dangers of getting too cozy with the world's system of government, changing what God's Word says in order to appease the world's current political or social standards. And we've, we've seen this a lot lately in, obviously, the immoral sin of homosexuality, in uh, even you know young couples living together before marriage. I mean, that's, a no, that's the norm in most churches these days. And, uh, you know, calling good evil and evil good. Just simply tolerating the world's ways infiltrating the church. To veer from God's ways, to compromise God's word for the sake of being comfortable, of not ruffling feathers, to blend in, or perhaps to be successful, or to make our mark on the world. Um, Maybe we use it to fight our political battles because we want our guy to win, right? Uh, to gain wealth or notoriety, to grow a congregation. All of these things, we can tolerate the world's practices and even demonic doctrines of demons within the church in order to gain some, in some way. We have to be careful. It says, some in Pergamum were faithful. Some were faithful, and some desperately needed to repent and get their priorities straight before it was too late. And it is no different for us today. The one who is faithful and true is promising to his church, Behold, I am coming quickly. I have a sharp two-edged sword, and I know where you live too. That's what he's saying to us. So the question is, as a local body of believers, where will we stand? Will we be counted among the some who are faithful to Him or the them that will face God's wrath? I, for one, (laughs) I live a better, safe than sorry lifestyle. I'm going to stick to what God's Word says. And if there's any question as whether or not what I'm doing or what I believe is an outlier, then then it's just not worth it to me. I'm going to stick with what God's Word says, and I will do that as your pastor. So hopefully that's something you will appreciate and, and, uh, and really adhere to yourself. I think that's the way to be when it comes to God's Word and honoring Him. So there we have His letter to the church at Pergamum. Still very pertinent to us in our lives in the modern day church.